0: Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1 with It's For Women. The car insurance with extra benefits like personal accident cover.
1: Well, January the 6th of this month marked the 40th anniversary of a murder attempt on my next guest. It was a bitterly cold morning in January 1982 when a bomb exploded under his car as it was driven along the old Nace dual carriageway at Newlands Cross in West Dublin. The driver, Dr. James Donovan, the director of the Forensic Science Laboratory at Garda HQ, was critically injured, but survived the attack that was meant to kill him. And Dr. Donovan joins me now. Good morning, Dr. Donovan, or Jim, as I said, we call you. And thanks so much for coming in to us this morning. Good morning. Listen, can I take you back to that January morning in 1982? You were in your car travelling along the Nase gill carriageway, what do you remember of what happened next?
0: Well, I suppose I remember little enough because it's a very fast occurrence. And uh, previously, a few months before, a device had exploded in much the same area, but it was a petrol bomb based and lifted the car. So I, I was a bit aware of the possibility. Now, Being in January, of course, looking under the car every morning at eight o'clock in the morning was not a good idea in that uh, it was wet and cold and dull and I didn't know what I was looking for, which is, most people don't know what the bomb should look like. And um, suddenly I was driving quite slowly from the traffic lights in Newlands Cross and this extremely loud, angry uh, sound occurred under me. Now, I... blackness descended the screen went windscreen went black and uh, I pretty well quickly lost consciousness I I put my hand down I knew faintly what had happened or what would have happened and uh, I saw felt that the trousers was shredded already and uh, there seemed to be gunge of blood and uh, bits of bone I suppose and um, that essentially was it Uh, I I I awoke in the St. James's Hospital, in Hospital 7 then, and um, the surgeon, Frank Ward, was accompanied by the plastic surgeon, Matt McHugh, and um, he said they were go- going to remove both my legs quite shortly and I'd be quite comfortable and they would do the best for my right hand to reserve it. And then I, I just disappeared again. I, I don't remember anything. Uh, for a few days afterwards... I was aware that the legs seemed to be still attached. I didn't know they were, but sensed there was something there, and uh, I found that they had continued to examine the legs when I they got me to the theatre, and the plastic surgeons sort of suggested that maybe they would try and do some reconstructive surgery and see if one leg or could be or saved. And Frank Ward had told me subsequently that he had already drawn the lines on my thighs where he was going to carry out the, the double amputations. Fortunately, the, the right hand was put into a, a cast and after, well, within a year it was usable again. But the, the legs have been slowly developed, uh, healed of themselves to an extent. But when... The, f- the feet have had to be reconfigured and some bones that were uh, there were put on what I call, termed knitting needles and the bones were suspended on them and slowly the bones fused together. But it, it, it's rather restrictive, coupled with the fact that, of course, tissue didn't withstand very much and there were a multiplicity of operations to ch- remove, to scrape off tissue that didn't establish a blood supply various bits of the legs so there were a lot of uh, surgical interventions every every second day in fact for weeks on end until such time as the anaesthetist said he was refusing to give me more general anaesthetics that the liver had been completely damaged by the anaesthetics because of course you you didn't eat that day uh, and or take any liquid but at least the legs remained and it's it's a difficult decision to make. Subsequently, would it have been better to lose the legs and have a prosthesis? but then they are quite restraining as well. You you can't do very much with artificial legs and they have to be removed frequently during the day, etc. So I was glad enough to spend so much time dressing the, the legs and not only in the first year, of course, but for 20 years afterwards, the legs bled quite frequently, and in fact, every day almost. And uh, the pain was uh, discomfort was was quite considerable. So uh, that didn't help the liver or stomach uh, uh, with the sheer volume of uh, drugs that had, that were necessary.
1: And now, like you walked into this studio seven today with crutches, but are you in pain still?
0: Well, I mean, in pain would be you get used to it. I'm in discomfort and um, every so often something occurs. A few months ago, I I again had um, quite severe infections in in one leg and that was very painful while the the antibiotics were taking effect three, four weeks before they're controlled.
1: And... To try and understand, you are a forensic scientist at the time this happened. We'll go into now why you were targeted. Mm -hmm. But you did go back, didn't you, Jim, afterwards to see your car. And as someone who works in forensics, what did you learn from what you saw?
0: And do you think they quite clearly were trying to kill you? Yes, well, the the floor of the car that I was in, which was a Mirafiori 131, um, there were solid enough cars, obviously, there was a hole, large hole, that, that extended from beneath the pedals back under the driver's seat and then from side to side. So the, the the whole floor. So the sheer volume of damage done. And some of those metal particles went into my legs. They, a lot of them came out slowly because metal particles do come out slowly and come to the, uh, the surface and can be picked off. But then a lot of them Remain inside. And recently, I had an X-ray of of the the lower legs, and it's, like, it's still like a, a starry sky, um, in that the little particles of still the shine in right? the X-rays are there. Do you think they intended to kill you? Yes, very definitely. The, the job is a bit unusual in that uh, you you take a responsibility for what you say in court, and you're aware of that, and that the people you are giving evidence for the state are already involved in, in quite serious crime. Nowadays, murders have been, between the, the families, for example, have been very common for the last, what is it, 10 years almost mm. now. At that time, it was unusual to kill. Gardy knew immediately,
1: Jim, didn't they, who was responsible for this? Who was
0: behind the attack? Well, I was told that it was Martin Karl, The general? Yes, I started with him in 1975 uh, with the murder of John Copeland at 97 Palmerston Road, a 24-year-old AIB official who was home early because he was preparing to go training for rugby in St Mary's uh, Rugby Club that night. And uh, he'd been, he been was married for a few weeks and uh, his wife found him dead in the doorway. Uh, that He obviously surprised one or two cows in the flat and they, they knifed him and killed him. So from then on, it was a very active criminal family and particularly he was a very dominant character on the scene and um, it was unusual uh, that uh, somebody so violent, for example, he he organised the robbery and the the jewellery in in Rathmines, there were 100 100 jobs, it was a big uh, commercial effort and... um, he finished it. And then, of course, he took pictures out of uh, Rosborough House and a whole variety of other things. And you kind of knew yourself, didn't you, Jim, that
1: he was going after you. Even they call you into court and
0: then he would laugh. Like yes. he was quite terrifying. Well, you see, they can ask, the defence can ask for your presence in court, not not requiring it at all. And on one occasion, in the, uh, after a trial going on in the, one of the courts, in the forecourt in the round hall, I was coming out and I heard a clicking of a camera and um, I was told that it was um, Martin Carl and somebody else, some associate of his, that were filming me in the, in the round hall. It's an area that you expect some sort of relevant privacy, but it doesn't happen. People were afraid of him. Were you afraid of him? I wasn't afraid of him. I I, I realised the problems with him and the fact that he was very adept at organising. I was aware that he was quite vicious in in his attitude to other people.
1: But it didn't deter you, Jim, in your determination as the head of the Guard, the HQ Forensic Science authority of giving evidence against these people. Where did you get that courage to keep doing that?
0: I took the job, not fully knowing the implications, obviously, from it, for it, because I, I was particularly concerned initially in that I was told there was no laboratory, there was no money for a laboratory or for equipment. Uh, you, you don't actually employ a scientist, you know, to sit at a desk. Uh, so uh, there was a, I had a fair amount of work to do to build up a laboratory and, and get get further staff and get the money for various equi- bits of equipment. So uh, I was p- particularly taken by a, v- a variety of things. And at that time, crime, in insofar as drugs were, were beginning to take off in a big way, but uh, explosive offences were also very common. Various assaults and murders were going on in around the country, and and then armed robberies. I don't know if you remember, but mm. there were absolute spates every week of armed robberies. Mm. And one one Friday, remember, we got somewhere like thirteen armed robberies into the laboratory to to examine. But crime was very rife at the time, and, and one didn't have time to be philosophical, if you like. Mm. And I was also aware already I had come to terms with uh, intimidation in that in Castle Bar court and circuit court. One time a judge turned to me after giving evidence and said, I'm putting the court in, in lockdown for a quarter of an hour and you will have that time to get out of the Castle Bar and leave safely. for safe." because he, mm-hmm. he was perturbed. But um, in Mountbatten case, three, uh, while a guard was accompanying me in and out to my home, there was a car started out when I left the laboratory at about eight o'clock one night. There were four men in the car. They clung to the back of my car. The guard produced his revolver and the light so that they knew there was a gun in the car. And they still followed. I drove into the short driveway I have at, at my house and they blocked the driveway. And quite frankly, I waited to die. Uh, I had no doubt that if I was eliminated, then there would be no trial.
1: You were the prosecution's key witness, really, weren't you, in the Mountbatten bombing?
0: So, um, but then suddenly after about 10 minutes or more, they, they just reversed and went away, whether it was solely intimidation or whether it was an aborted assassination, I don't know. So one was aware that there was an element of danger. Was there no moment, Jim, where you thought
1: after, as you say, those both terrifying incidents you just mentioned, before the one that Almost killed you of talking to your wife or your wife saying, you got to stop this. I mean, you do a great job for the state, but you need to mind
0: yourself. Yeah, but you live in a community and that becomes extremely difficult to um, provide uh, protection. Now, the, my wife has insisted on certain procedures for example you don't go into a a room with the light on and then draw the curtains you go in and draw the curtains and then put the light on that sort of you don't open the door to anybody Uh, there are a lot of things that you have to live with but then everybody has to more or less be conscious of of crime if you like no one was ever prosecuted for
1: that crime that almost killed you why not uh,
0: that is a consideration that has crossed my mind, and I, I've preferred not to investigate that because uh, the I think seven people were nominated as as giving money and and being involved in it, and the neighbours told me that there they were there was a car with two men outside my house for um, more or less two weeks beforehand, and they were obviously they were in they were not guardy, they were obviously criminal elements doing surveillance and somebody was paying that. And so the resources available in criminal activity are considerable. Reading your interview last weekend with Paul Williams
1: in the Irish Independent, I was amazed that despite your serious injuries, you returned to your work in the forensic science laboratory, didn't you? You went back to work there.
0: Uh, Oh, I did, yes. I I I, I went back to the job as quickly as, as I could. Well, first of all, of course, there there aren't all that many job opportunities for crippled uh, scientists. You know? So, <laughs> since it's it's an, an active uh, profession, so um, that was one thing. The second thing was that the uh, commissioner of the time, uh, Paddy McLachlan, came and said, "Well, I just want to know, are you coming back?" Uh, in such a way as to say, uh, "I want a particular type of answer from you." But uh, I said, "Definitely, I am coming back." He said, "That's good." because it would be bad for morale if you didn't come back. I felt a responsibility to the laboratory I had started. I, I realised there was a need for it. And obviously there were a lot of loose ends to be tied up. I felt I was quite competent mentally to do it, if not physically.
1: Were you worried afterwards, because obviously Martin Carl was still alive at that time, that they would come after you again?
0: Yes. There was nothing much I could do other than continue on and there was obviously a need for management because I was actively involved in analysis and giving evidence Martin Cahill
1: or the general as he was known um, he was murdered in 1994 Mm -hmm. does outliving him the man who inflicted such physical and psychological wounds in you does it offer you any solace strangely
0: enough when I retired, I got a letter from Colette Copeland. She was the wife of the man murdered in 97 Palmerston Road in 75. She remarked that Martin Carl was shot dead on the same date of her husband's birthday. But she also remarked what an effect um, the isolation had on her in that she was a, an only child of only children, And as a consequence, she had no living relative. And uh, sometimes when you see the effect or know the effect of criminal activity on people's lives, it is quite serious. Do you feel now, as we close, Jim, angry about what happened to you or not? Well, there are times if my legs are particularly painful and um, stomach is kicking up, the liver isn't that happy with life. (laughs) Yes, uh, you you can be a bit angry at what the the car the hand that life has dealt you. But my wife has been supportive and did a lot of nursing. <laughs> and um who knows what sort of life that you're going to get anyway. Um that's that's my life. I feel I've, I've achieved a little bit certainly being angry at at life I suppose we can all rail at the stars and Deplore the wind and this sort of thing, but it doesn't get you anywhere really. And uh,
1: well, it's been a privilege, Jim, actually, to talk to you today. I think everyone in this country owes you a huge debt of gratitude, and uh, I wish you all the very, very best to you and your wife. Thank you, Jim.
0: Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio One.